As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Soccer Show and our preview of World Cup Group D. This is the group that features reigning champions France, who still look impressive at first glance. Will they go deep and survive the scrutiny? Or will they implode as it ends up in mutiny? Group D also features our friends from down under. Australia snuck in through the qualies, but they aren't just here to make up the numbers. Can the Aussies go the distance or will they suffer the ennui of heading home early to put a shrimp on the barbie? Denmark are here (laughs) and they're keeping it zen with a squad full of players whose names end in sen. The Great Danes aren't to be underestimated. They'll feel the knockout rounds are fated. And we round out with a team who've never cleared the first stage, but who knows, maybe this time Tunisia will be on the right page. This group contains teams with some pretty disparate geography, so settle down and allow TSS to give each of them a little biography. My name's Ryan Bailey, joining me today a man with some big D energy, Taylor Rocco, hello. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know what to make of that in the introduction. <laughs> Ryan, that was incredible. That was that was your best one yet, I really think so. And yes, I have big Danish energy, that is correct. Yes, that was what the D stood for, or Group D. Which is to say that I'm I'm dour and enjoy the rain. <laughs> Very much so. And uh, and movies with a certain uh, construction to them, which is, seems to be the way they do things there. Uh, anyway, yeah, <laughs> I, I thank you for, for the uh, compliment on the intro. Uh, rhyming ennui with uh, Shrimp on the Barbie was... Uh, <laughs> Quite a, inspired quite a, a move yeah <laughs> thanks anyway joining us a man you just heard is a man wearing his beret with his striped shirt while clutching a baguette as he prepares to talk about le bleu bonjour joe larry oh bonjour i do like baguettes if not the other two things that you included in that introduction for me right i'm curious do you just sort of sit down when you're making these introductions and think of key words that you want to use and then like how do you how do you do this or is that a trade secret that you're not going to tell us Mm, it just falls out of me, Joe. I'm very talented. Is that it's what like you He does rap battles in his spare time. <laughs> in his spare time. I don't really know. I don't give it too much thought, Joe, but I appreciate that you liked it. Rounding okay. out our group today, a man, you just heard his voice. He's glad he won't be sleeping in a shipping container in the desert for $200 a night. Is that right, Graham Ruthman? 
Uh, yes, very glad. I, I am glad that I don't have tickets to Fire Festival Doha edition. Anyone who has seen the pictures of some of the accommodation in the Qatari desert for this World Cup will also be glad that they are not going to this tournament. Yeah, I, I, I don't really know what's going on. They're just There's just no hotel rooms. People are sleeping in the desert. People are sleeping on cruise ships. What a mess. Yeah, this is uh, images of some, one of the fan villages that emerged on Twitter, as you say there, Graham. I'm just imagining the Scran. What do you think the Scran's going to be like in the desert? Oh, no. It's going to be bad pizza and bad burgers, isn't it? It's, it's going to be, be like a, it's mm. gonna be like amusement park food. It's going to be frozen stuff aplenty. I imagine, yes, lots of meats coming out of plastic wrappings in Qatar. Oh, man. But we you should... all... Like you all are correct, and now I'm even more bummed because you could have like a really great desert barbecue. You could get local cuisine. It could be this amazing sort of mm. festivity of culture. And instead, you're absolutely right. It's going to be like reheated Papa John's flowing yeah. in, or whatever their official pizza sponsor is will be flowing. We, in. we could uh, all the fans could go to David Beckham's favorite spice market. Does anyone know that reference? The the, the Qatari uh, David Beckham did a, a promotional video oh, for the Qatar no. World Cup where he said Qatar had one of his favorite spice markets because he's got a list. <laughs> I mean, he like Ryan is a man of the people, Graham. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. Couldn't decide. Didn't want to just narrow it down to the one, or didn't mean yeah. it enough, but didn't want to offend his actual favorite it's top spice bazaar. It's so, top yeah. four. No he higher. Didn't want to go too, no lower. Too bold. Top yeah. four. Yeah, I believe in the latest Esquire, I was reading the the, the 20 uh, spice markets you must visit before you diagram. So, yeah. um, I mean, the spice markets are great. I'm not going to lie. But uh, the idea of having multiple favorites is maybe a, a step too far. <laughs> I thought he was going to go with the posh reference there, but um, went in a different direction. So very, very impressive, for Mr. Beckham there. Um, what's also oh. very impressive, gents, is we have a live show November 20th, the first day of the World Cup. Come and join us in Brooklyn. We'll be talking soccer. We'll be doing fun things we'll be asking you to buy tickets in the description please check it out there's a few remaining joe it's going to be so much fun isn't it just it's, it's going to be a gl- it's going to be a blast i can speak i do this for a living definitely i sure. i know how to talk uh we're excited graham told folks earlier this week to wear their most embarrassing jerseys yep which i think it's going to be fun i want to see just some elite level How'd you u.s write? men's national team i mean that t- might turn out to be a good one graham for all we know <laughs> after he slips into the world cup squad earlier this week i, I want to see like some really deep cuts out there i'm looking forward to it i'm looking forward to hanging out with you guys and, and also our listeners as well come come hang out with us it's going to be a blast yeah and the first person to turn up with an mk don shirt is being turned away just so you know Oh, we won't stand I better back. send back my order then. <laughs> All right, let's talk about Group D of the World Cup, shall we? As I mentioned, Joseph Lowry is going to be covering France in this episode. By the way, I don't know if you saw, Joe, uh, the team was announced on Wednesday evening by Didier Deschamps on national primetime TV in France uh, on a TV show called La Liste des Bleus. Uh, like a studio special where they went to cut to players with their reactions with their family and stuff. So that was a um, a fun thing to do. I suppose the US did something similar. They had a little stage show as well, didn't they? But I thought that was a very dressed up occasion from from the French there. Um, I will be talking about Australia, Australia, as we're going to now call them. It's S-T-R-A-Y-A, listener. That's because uh, they abbreviate everything. Uh, Denmark is going to be covered by Graham Rutherford and TT Tunisia Taylor. Mm combo like it um what's interesting to know about this group gents is that three quarters of them were a group in 2018 at the world cup yep. uh, if you substitute peru for tunisia 
it would have been the same group. So uh, interesting to see that France and Denmark went through in 2018. Will there be a different fate in this group? We shall see. But let's go no. through. <laughs> Probably not. Probably not is the answer. But let's stick around anyway, shall we, on this episode. Um, <laughs> let's start off with France, Joe. Let's hear their nickname, which I might have dropped already. And their TSS nickname, the name you feel sums up their oeuvre, their jeu de vivre. Yeah, so the nickname is Les Bleus, which means the the blues. Yep. Um, the, TSS, the TSS nickname that I've given them is, wait, that guy plays for France too? Because this is a slightly <laughs> different France team, but uh, also has plenty of names that folks will know and know quite well from their experiences at past tournaments, past World Cups, and basically all over the best teams in Europe. Ryan, that's the real nickname and my TSS nickname, that guy plays for France too. Because, yeah, he probably does. Yeah, they're deep. They're deep, I suppose, is the summary, isn't it, Joe? Uh, yeah, okay. very much so. Um, Australia, um, I, I like the idea of giving them a nickname because they abbreviate a nickname absolutely everything, as I mentioned there. So, like, uh, this afternoon is the Savo, Cup of Tea, Kappa. Uh, I think Taylor uh, Bullfrogs are Chuswassers, and the um, <laughs> nation's second favourite sport is Knifey Spoonie, but that's a different thing altogether. Uh, their real nickname is the Socceroos. Good to know they call it soccer as well, guys. Uh, it's not the primary sport in Australia. Uh, that would be Aussie rules football, that would be cricket, and that would be rugby as the three primary sports there. And if you've never seen Aussie rules football, listener, check it out. It's brutal. It's <laughs> it's like tougher than rugby and gridiron football uh, it's played on a round field, like on a cricket pitch, and it is tough. Uh, but yet yeah, they do have a soccer team indeed called the Socceroos. My nickname for them is Graham Rudman's favourite World Cup team because they are incredibly Scottish. Yeah. Um, they've got five players, as Graham noted in our chat earlier, five players in this squad who were either born in Scotland or played for Scotland youth teams. Uh, they've got a ton of players currently playing in Scotland as well. Aaron Moy is at Celtic. They've got three Hearts players in this 26. Cameron Devlin, uh, Nathaniel Atkinson, and Kai Rowles. Uh, they've got a guy at Dundee. They've got a guy from St Mirren. They've got uh, Martin Boyle at Hibs, who was born mm -hmm. in Aberdeen, uh, played for Scotland under-16s as well. So, um, yeah, this, this, this squad, Graham, by my math, is 27% Scottish, at least. Uh, Jackson Irvine as well, their defensive midfielder, who is a, was a Scottish journeyman as well. So plenty of Scottish interest for you, Graham. Yeah, and I read the other day, I didn't know this FIFA rule, but for every player that's called up to the World Cup, um, FIFA p p pays their, their, their club $10,000 a day. And so uh, because there's so many Scottish players in the Australian squad or players who play in Scotland, actually, I think Scottish clubs are making something like $3 million out of uh, this World Cup, uh, even wow. though we're not playing at this World Cup. <laughs> and m much of that is down to the Australian team, as you referenced there, Ryan. So the Socceroos is basically supporting the Scottish economy over this winter. Essentially, yes. Yeah. Fantastic. It's appreciated. <laughs> as it is, as it is, yes. Cost of living crisis, very much helped by the Socceroos in the UK. Thank you very much. Uh, Graham, let's hear about Denmark and their nickname. So officially, Denmark are nicknamed De Rosa Vid, which translates as the red and whites. That's pretty self-explanatory, the colours that they wear. But you might have also heard another nickname for them. So they also get called Danish Dynamite, and that dates, dates back to a song that they had for Euro uh, 1984, the, the 1984 European Championships. And that was a very successful tournament, tournament for Denmark. It was, it was really their first successful tournament. They reached the semi-finals. And then you had Euro 92 after that, where they went and won the whole damn thing. So it's a nickname that is kind of evocative of a certain era. 
in Danish football. There's actually a book called Danish Dynamite that's about that whole era, but they still use it to this day. So you might hear that term Danish Dynamite during this World Cup. As for a, a TSS unofficial nickname, I kind of want to call them the Bacon Boys. Uh, so bacon is Denmark's biggest export and I yeah. like bacon a lot. So I'd support them on that basis alone. But if I have to come up with a nickname that describes the actual team on the pitch, I'll call them potentially better than the class of 92. It really feels like Denmark is enjoying another golden generation. And I honestly think they can go really far at this World Cup, which probably means they're going out in the group stages. But nonetheless, <laughs> you can see a, a route where they go into the, the, the knockout rounds. Obviously, they made it to the semifinals of, uh, of, the, of the last Euros. They were very good at the last Euros. I kind of tease my prediction here a little bit. I think they're going to finish top of this group and then we'll see how they, how they do from there. But there's, there's plenty to like about this team and also Bacon. There, yes, definitely on the bacon. Uh, listener, um, if you grew up in the UK, as I did in the 90s, you'll have seen commercials for Danish bacon with Peter Schmeichel in a pig farm. I don't know if you remember those, Graham, but they were uh, um, uh, great. <laughs> anyway, uh, Taylor, <laughs> Tunisia, tell us all about them and a nickname. Uh, I will. I will tell you, first of all, they are called the Not Bacon Boys. They're 98% Muslim, so uh, not a lot of bacon going on in uh, in Tunisia, would be my guess. Their real nickname is the Eagles of Carthage, dating back to the... The uh, the empire that warred with Rome, uh, famous general General Hannibal was uh, Carthaginian, so they have a famous Hannibal in their midfield. Does this Tunisia team? I'm giving them the nickname the Internationals. Uh, their most recent roster had players in 14 different countries, including the French second division or leagues represented, including the French second division, the championship, Lyon's reserve team, all three goalkeepers playing in the domestic league, two in Kuwait, one in Hungary. They are spread out all over the globe. They play for many different clubs in many different countries, but they will be together uh, to represent their country here uh, in this group. They're replacing Peru, hopefully with a slightly better showing than Peru had jolly good all right let's head back to france joe let's hear the story of this team heading in the tournament uh, obviously we know four years ago they lifted this trophy um there's there's tales of injuries there's potential for chaos and mutiny hopefully got my fingers crossed for that uh, tell us about it joe yeah france is good for that kind of thing uh we've seen it time and time again with the french national team really on on both sides so both the men's and women's teams are seemingly susceptible to that kind of thing Ryan, you mentioned it. They won the World Cup back in 2018. They finished on top of their World Cup qualifying group to make it to Qatar. It wasn't all smooth sailing, although most of it kind of was. They drew home and away with Ukraine. They drew Bosnia and Herzegovina at home. Uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina, not especially good. If we go back a little bit further, um, they won the Nations League. We go back a little bit further than that. They lost to Switzerland on penalties in the round of 16 of the most recent Euros in just an, a bonkers game. That game was absolutely absurd. Paul Pogba put on a show. Switzerland got a couple of really critical goals. That one was, was kind of a shootout. It was a really fun game. So France is looking for more at this tournament, right? They're going to be remembering the Euros. They're going to remember how that tournament didn't really go according to plan. Didier Deschamps knows that, and he's made a couple of changes that we'll talk about later on. Another big part of the story of this team, though, headed into this World Cup, is injuries. So two of the, the biggest names in this French team... Kante, N'Golo Kante, is out. He's not in Didier Deschamps' World Cup squad. And Paul Pogba has been dealing with an injury for quite some time. He's out with a knee injury. So it's going to be a different midfield. There have also been a number of other injuries that have, have sort of put players in question. Mike Magnon, who's AC Milan's goalkeeper, very, very good, is not in this squad. It's going to be Hugo Lloris starting anyway. And then Rafael Varane, Karim Benzema, and Presnel Kimpembe have all been dealing with injuries, but they're all in the squad. And Deschamps says that they're going to be ready 
even with those injuries, right? Even without Conte and Pogba, basically an entirely different midfield. France can beat any team on any given day. They're the deepest team in the world, personnel-wise. I think there's not really any argument around that. And they have enough game-changing stars to basically play through anyone. Didier Deschamps is so confident, like, fellas, that he picked just 25 players instead of 26 that he was allowed to pick. I I cannot understand why you would ever decide to do that. Like, I really cannot. But also, I don't have the 25 players that Didier Deschamps has at his mm-hmm. disposal. So if that's not the ultimate pre-World Cup flex, I, I don't really know what is. He's, he's using the extra hotel room to pile up the jackets like you do at a party. <laughs> that's all it is. He's, he's trying to u- use that space more efficiently, Graham. That's all. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's cute that you think they'll be wearing warm weather jackets. Yeah, exactly. In Qatar, yeah. The storage yeah. containers yeah. might be cold. They might be cold. That's France true. won't be in storage <laughs> containers. <laughs> All right, good stuff. Uh, we, we look forward to hearing a little bit more about France later on from you, Joe. Uh, I'm going to talk about Australia's story coming into this tournament. They've been at last four World Cups. They made the round of 16 in Germany in 2006. That was kind of a, a golden generation of sorts. They had like Harry Kuehl, Mark Viduka, Tim Cahill, all those guys. Um, th- this team, mm, I'm not sure it's uh, what kind of metal generation it is. I don't know. It's not quite gold all the same. And in 2006, by the way, they switched from OFC to AFC uh, to give themselves a fairer chance, they called it, of qualifying for the World Cup and to allow A-League clubs to play in the AFC Champions League. In the last two World Cups, they finished bottom of their group both times. In those two World Cups, they have accrued one point, which was a draw with Denmark, uh, fellow Group uh, D Denmark in 2018. They haven't won a game at the World Cup since 2010. So I think as a target, winning a game would be a good, a great step for this Australia team, I would suggest. Um, In terms of qualification, they absolutely cruised it for the first part of qualification and then they struggled. They went into a playoff spot. They beat the the UAE, the United Arab Emirates, in the AFC fourth round which brought them to the Intercontinental Playoff, where they beat Peru, but only on penalties after a nil-nil draw. So kind of razor-thin margins got them here. And by the way, their qualification has been massively affected by the pandemic. Uh, They had 20 qualifiers over 1,008 days, according to The Guardian. They started in September 2019. And also they played a lot of their games, their home games, in Doha. So they're used to the region because of um, Australia's very strict COVID requirements. A lot of their home games didn't actually take place in Australia during this qualification period. Um, So yeah, they they had 11 straight wins in qualies and then the wheels basically completely fell off for the Aussies. Uh, They've had a few good recent wins uh, in the last sort of five games. I think they're on a five game winning streak. They've won a series of two games against New Zealand coming into this one. But yeah, we'll see how they uh, show up when the big boys are in town in Qatar. So there we go. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering, like I've heard uh, like Irish uh, people, especially Irish comedians talk about how it's impossible to have a, a conversation with an American and they don't slowly start mirroring the Irish accent. Have you done the same with Australia? Have you really embraced the abbreviations? Because I don't believe I've ever heard you use the word qualies before, but now that we're talking <laughs> Australia, in came qualies. You're quite right. I've, I've slipped that in, uh, unmistakably. I think that's qualies is more of a tennis term I've slipped in there for qualifiers, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, because I'm talking about Australians, that's quite fair. And by the way, um, most Americans when I've lived in America for a decade, believe I'm Australian because of my accent isn't quite the Queen's English. And then when I go home, I don't quite sound English anymore. So Australian, my theory, Taylor, is it sits exactly between American and English. In, in Ryan, this pronunciation. I've, I've got bad news for you. I believe you'll find it's the King's English now, my friend. Oh, mate. 
caught. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was good. That was good. <laughs> um, Graham, let's hear about um, uh, Denmark's story. Okay, so Denmark, they were the, the surprise package of Euro 2020 last summer, and they kind of became the neutral favourites during that tournament. I think they might actually be Joe's boyhood team, along with uh, Napoli, Ajax, Porto, Villarreal. Who else do you support, Joe? Uh, that's a pretty good list. I do okay. love me some Denmark, though, Grammy. Yeah, Denmark right. are on that list as well. So, <laughs> <Yep>. um, <laughs> yeah, obviously, uh, last uh, last summer they started the tournament, to bring the tone down a little bit, they started the, their, their tournament uh, at the Euros with that terrible Christian Eriksen match where he had a, a cardiac a cardiac arrest on, on the pitch. Um, but from that moment, Denmark, thankfully Eriksen was okay in the end. Obviously, he's, he's playing again. He'll be at this World Cup. That's a, that's a great storyline story around this Denmark team. But at the Euros last summer, from that moment, they kind of flourished into this well-coached dynamic team that made a run all the way to the semifinals. And, and they, they haven't really stopped since then. So they've, they won nine out of their 10 World Cup qualifiers, Scotland being the only team that they lost to, just saying. Uh, they beat France home and away in the Nations League, obviously, in this group with France so that should give them some qualif- uh, some uh, co- confidence I should say and you could argue that they are now even stronger than they were at Euro 2020 so many people are talking about Denmark as dark horses for this tournament that I'm not really sure if they still qualify for dark, dark horse status at, at, at this point they might just be one of the best teams in Europe they have a, a good mix of youth and experience they play some nice stuff with the ball. They're strong off the ball. Um, and at the risk of becoming a parody of myself, I have to mention their kits because this is actually a legitimate storyline for Denmark right now. So Denmark have three kits for this World Cup, two that they will actually play uh, in at the tournament. So one red, one white, and, and a third kit, one black that's been produced for fans. And the manufacturer logos and badges on those kits are all the same color as the kit so it's not particularly obvious that they're made by Hummel or that there's a Danish badge there they're, they're all the one color and they are protest kits at this World Cup being held in Qatar and Hummel who who make the kits and have made Denmark kits for decades say quote uh, it, it does not wish to be visible in a tournament uh, that's cost thousands of lives which is obviously uh, a very pertinent stance for them to take, a very admirable stance. I can't imagine that many other countries or certainly many other brands will be taking a, a stance like that, and they should be applauded for that, in my opinion. The kits themselves look really smart, but obviously that is not the point, and uh, some of the strongest anti-Qatar sentiment has come from Denmark. They haven't been slow to condemn the, the human rights violations in the country and the societal issues as well. They plan on wearing warm-up shirts at this World Cup that read human rights for all. I was actually reading just before we started recording that FIFA has banned those shirts, so uh, way to go FIFA there. But uh, yeah, plenty reasons to like the team on the pitch and plenty reasons to support Denmark off the pitch as well. Yeah, and we maybe we call Group D the group of protest, Graham, because Australia are one of very few teams who've actually yep. taken a stance against Qatar's uh, human rights issues as well. Football Australia uh, issued statements condemning the suffering of migrant workers and LGBTQ plus people and calling for reform in the country as well. So, yeah, um, maybe, maybe and the French, like, they, they'll protest every five minutes about something. Uh, they, they like a strike. So maybe they'll do, do something too. We'll see. We'll see, Graham. Um, Taylor, Tunisia, their story, please. I'm just reeling from if you distill Graham's statement down there. Uh, FIFA banned human rights is what I'm what I'm hearing from that story. So that's that's troubling. Uh, the story of Tunisia is uh, less troubling than that, certainly. Uh, though I do think they are going to be in a difficult position at this World Cup. Uh, they do not have the greatest World Cup track record. They've been to 
Four of the last six, so this makes it five of the last seven. They've only won one game in that time. They beat Panama. So I guess they're doing better than Australia, in your face, Australia. Uh, and they did play England very, very late. It took a late winner from Harry Kane to decide that one. But when you look at the the numbers from their World Cup campaigns, uh, this has been highly touted. Uh, only Australia and Saudi Arabia have a higher loss rate at the World Cup, all of them above 60%, 6-0%. Woof. And they have failed to keep a clean sheet in 14 of their last 15 World Cup games, have Tunisia. That has changed a little bit. Uh, the problem is that though they keep clean sheets, they don't score many goals either. Uh, only Mali uh, kept more clean sheets than Tunisia in the second round of African qualifying. Uh, but they only scored 12 uh, goals in all of qualifying, which is the second fewest of any African side. So they have a very strong defensive spine, uh, though they did recently get blown out by Brazil 5-1. to one. It's Brazil. It's fine. Uh, but they don't score as many goals either. So it's the, the kind of balance of scoring goals uh, while also keeping that defensive spine and not getting overextended. Uh, and the really big uh, like indicator of this uh, is in the playoff with Mali. That's how they got here. They won their group. Uh, Equatorial Guinea was in second place in that one. They did not win their last game of that day. So uh, uh, Tunisia able to get through into the playoff. That's how African play, uh, qualifying works. It's pretty brutal. And in that playoff with Mali, we had one goal in 180 minutes of play. And it was an own goal from Musa Sissako, uh, who was then sent off for a clumsy challenge five minutes later. Despite that man advantage for 50 minutes or so, Tunisia still did not get another goal, nor did Mali. And now Tunisia are here. They've got most of their uh, big players fit and ready to go, though they did have a key player suffer a broken jaw. So he'll be wearing a big mask. Uh, we'll talk more about that manager and the players later on. But it's basically a team that have found form but very defensive form at that and so in this tournament I think they could be a really difficult team to play but at the same time if they go a goal a goal down they're another one of those teams that I think will struggle to get back into it all right thank you very much Taylor let's take a quick break when we come back we're going to dig in more to the tactics the managers the rosters and all that jazz stick around we'll be back looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our preview of Group D. Let's turn our attention back to France. I want to hear a bit, Joe about their manager, his tactics. Perhaps if you can work in a reference to the fact that he looks identical to my father-in-law, Didier Deschamps. That would be helpful for me too. Yeah, so that's... How did you know that was in my notes? Didier Deschamps looks be. exactly like Ryan Bailey's father-in-law. Yeah, I don't yeah. I don't know how you've managed to pull that off. Either way, maybe they're twins, and maybe your father-in-law's been in charge of France since 2012. He's the longest <laughs> tenured manager at this World Cup. So he's been around for a decade now in the France setup. I kind of think this is going to be his last go-around, but eh, that's just me. Uh, he's a former French national team player, very long senior career. Then on the managerial side, he's managed Monaco, Juventus, Marseille, and then took the French job again back in 2012. 
tactically, and, and this is where I have another nickname for them coming in that I'll say in just a minute, but tactically there are some details of this team, some hallmarks that they do have. Didier Deschamps has, has gone back in 2018, went with this sort of asymmetrical 4-2-3-1 shape that had Kylian Mbappe shaded to the left, and it, it worked really well for them as they went to win the World Cup, or at least it worked well enough. Then they experimented with some back threes more recently, and now Didier Deschamps is saying it's going to be four at the back. This is a direct quote from him around the roster release. He said, quote, it will be four at the back. We did a lot of analysis, and I had a lot of discussions with my staff and players, and I guess that influenced his decision a little bit of those players feeling more comfortable in a back four. Maybe, and this is just one thought I have, maybe this is conspiracy theory hour, maybe this is just throwing the other opponents in this group off the scent, and they are going to roll out a back three on, on match day one or at some point in this group. The decision to go to a back four feels odd based off of the roster construction that I'll get to later. But hey, I mean, Didier Deschamps can do what he wants, right? And, and that is, in some ways, a feature of this team. He doesn't love to high press. They prefer to mid-block, uh, defend in a mid-block with occasional pressing. They will press in certain games and in certain moments, and I, I won't be surprised if they do try to suffocate some of the teams in this group. But don't expect them to be flying forward all the time like maybe a team like Morocco might have done in the last World Cup they're not very structured in the attack. And this is where the other nickname that I reference comes into play. In so many ways, this team reminds me of the U.S. Women's National Team. In that, they're stacked, right? And that's, that's what I got to earlier. They have so much talent, right? Their, their floor is higher than like 75 to, to 80% of the teams in the world ceiling, right? So they, their floor is higher, I would argue, than the U.S. Men's National Team ceiling. Their floor is higher than, you know, certainly Australia and Tunisia in this group. They have so much ability, but they lack structure. They can get to the final third very easily. They can get, they can progress, generally speaking, easily through each third, but they don't have like a, a clear, defined way of attacking that creates chances. Instead, it's all about the individual players doing stuff, and that can work, right? We saw that back in 2018. That was enough to get them to the World Cup final and have them win it against Croatia. Although, if I recall correctly, they didn't play all that well in that game and, and didn't play all that well for stretches of that tournament. Or you can have moments like against Switzerland earlier on in the Euros where they crash out, right? The, the system was lacking and, and it handicapped them. So that's one thing I'm watching for f with this team. That's, that's sort of something I see with the U.S. Women's National Team right now. So much talent, the floor is so high, but just incredibly wasteful and inefficient in the attack. And so that is, that is what's going to hold France back other than the off-the-field stuff that could always hold them back. They'll usually play, and it seems like Deschamps is going to have them play out of a back four outside of the back three that they've been using more recently. They're going to be in a back four. It's probably going to be a 4-3-3 or a 4-2-3-1. But keep your eyes on how France try to create chances. It's going to be a lot of 1-2 combination play. It's going to be a lot of sort of organizing themselves on the fly, which I think is just a, a really bad way to set up a team, frankly. But France are France, and they are good enough to make a big run regardless of how their tactical approach sort of helps them or, or doesn't help them. Um, Joe, I'm, I'm hearing chaos, and I get a certain amount of schadenfreude from that. Is that yes. fair to say? Retweet. They are, they're going to be chaotic and they're going to be fun to watch at times, right? If you don't go down the tactical rabbit holes that I sort of can't stop myself from going down, you're going to have fun watching this France team because at least I, I hope you will, because there is enough game breaking talent in this group to just burn anything down at any given moment. So yeah, Ryan, it's, it's going to be chaotic. Yes. Wonderful. Um, I think the other important takeaway here, uh, based on Ryan's introduction to this one is that we now call him daddy Deschamps and I'm going to insist on that one. <laughs> Oh, no. Starting after my preview's done. Yeah, for sure. Yes, yes, yes. Deal.
Now I'm forever unclean. Thank you, Taylor. Can't purge that <laughs> a one. Pleasure, my friend. Oh goodness me, Ryan, you have no ground in this that's particular actually, conversation. Yeah, that's a very. I actually might use that as a very good one. Thank you. <laughs> um, let's move on to Australia and their manager, Graham Arnold, which is the most one of the most Australian names I can imagine. He's Sydney born and bred. Is Graham Arnold? He took over after the 2018 World Cup cycle. He's a former striker who played in the Netherlands and uh, somewhere else in Europe. I've forgotten. It's not in my notes. He managed a lot of eight league sides as well. Uh, when he joined as Australia coach, he said his side would play like Liverpool. Um, they are a side that likes to hit on the counter. They're very physical as well, which you'd expect from an Australian team. Uh, they play a high press uh, when the occasion suits it. They're very strong in transition. That's something that Arnold prides his teams on. And they've got quite a reliance on set pieces too. So there's many facets there, which I could see makes a worthy comparison to Liverpool um, likes to have, a, as I say, a high press occasionally. He plays a four-two-three-one generally with this side as well, with some marauding fullbacks, as is the fashion. Um, it's it's a good system. It's a very good system, and the intent is great. Uh, might struggle a bit against teams in low block. I'm not sure. Maybe not uh, an issue when playing the likes of Denmark and France in this group. But what will be an issue for this team, I think, to be frank, is the quality level. Uh, of this team uh, compared to certainly Denmark and France and possibly Tunisia as well. So um, a well-coached team, a well-structured intent, but not sure if they'll be able to pull off the master plan of getting a decent amount of points in this tournament. We shall see, though. Hey, let's be positive about this thing. Um, Graham, Denmark. So Kasper Hulmand is the, the, the Denmark manager. He was the, the managerial breakout star, I would say, of last summer's Euros. I think he had some admirers on this podcast and with and with good reason because Denmark were such a well-coached team at that tournament and I think they'll be a well-coached team at this tournament as well. Here's something I didn't know about Hulman when I was doing my research I found out that while he didn't have really much of a playing career to speak of and he retired at 26 due to injury um, he did play college soccer in the United States. He played for the North Florida Ospreys. They play in Jacksonville and that's all I've got on the North Florida <laughs> Ospreys. Um, he is a, he's a modern coach. He's still relatively young Bortles. in managerial terms. What was that, Ryan? I was just shouting Bortles. Sorry, go on. Okay. He's still relatively young in managerial terms. And, and uh, yeah, as I've said a couple of times, I, I get the feeling Denmark are going to have a good tournament. If they don't, it'll be a bit of a shock. If they do well, I think he'll get some big job offers. I read that he actually agreed to join Anderlecht a few years ago when he was at Nordischland in, in Denmark. But the, the deal fell through in the end. I think even bigger clubs will be looking at how Hulman does at the World Cup. He was linked with that Aston Villa job before the, uh, they went for Unai Emery. So it wouldn't surprise me if after this World Cup we maybe see him in the Premier League or one of the other big European leagues. In terms of the tactics, one of the most impressive things about Denmark's success at Euro 2020 was the way that they adapted to the loss of Christian Eriksen in that first game, not able to play in any other matches in the rest of that, that tournament. They started the first match in a, back, in a back four. That was how they had been set up until that point under Hulmand. But then they shifted into this back three after that point and, and they handled that switch with no problem at all. Just another sign that this is a very well-coached team. He'll probably use, Hulmand will probably use the 4-3-3 the three, three formation at this World Cup when he can, but he still has that option to go to a back three and maybe make better use of, of the wing backs, which was such a key part of the way 
Denmark got forward at the Euro, so maybe if something isn't working for them at this tournament, they've, they've got that option. Um, they are most effective when they're allowed to play in quick transition, um, when they have space to burst into and when they can move the ball into those wide areas that I mentioned there. Um, they're not so good when they have to break down low defensive blocks, although they still have players like uh, Mikkel Damsgaard and Christian Eriksen, who's obviously back in the national team. Those guys can produce something out of nothing from distance. But Denmark can struggle sometimes against those low defensive blocks. It's funny how many teams we, we've already previewed for this World Cup that have that same issue. Yeah. Denmark being another one. It's, it's almost as if kind of international coaches don't have much time to build attacking passing sequences. And that is a weakness that Denmark share with a number of teams. But anyway, defensively, Denmark like to press their opponents. opponents. If you look through their numbers, they're very strong in terms of ball recoveries and they don't allow many shots on goal. You can get in, be in behind them if you move the ball quickly enough and target the areas in behind those fullbacks particularly Joachim Mela I'll come on to talk a little bit more about him later if you can get in behind him you can expose Denmark a little bit but generally speaking this is a very well-rounded team a very well-coached team and there's plenty of reason to believe that they will have a good World Cup that's great so Graham in the Denmark-Australia game you, we both noted that both teams are great in transition but might struggle against a team in low block so either we're going to have a free-flowing masterpiece or two mm. teams sitting in low block and it's the worst game ever the last match that we said that about, I think, was MLS Cup Final, and that one turned out okay. So let's hope for a repeat of that. <laughs> very true, very true. Thank you, Graham. Uh, last for this segment, last but not least, Tunisia, Taylor. Uh, mm -hmm. Their manager, their tactics, pray tell. Tunisia's manager is a man by the name of Jalal Qadri. Uh, he is 50 years old. This is his 26th managerial gig. Huh. Yeah, 26. He's had a busy career since he started coaching in 2001. Uh, and his job before he was the Tunisia manager was the assistant manager of Tunisia. This is really interesting to me. So uh, he's brought in as an assistant under Monterre Kabayer, uh, whom he accompanies to the 2021 Africa Cup of Nations as an assistant again. And that is a very disastrous tournament for Tunisia. They lose two of their three group stage games, but because uh, there are third place teams going through, they make it to the knockout round. Uh, Kabayer, the manager, gets COVID, though. So he has to sit out the round of 16 game. And that is the one win that Tunisia have in the entire competition. They beat Nigeria. They then advance to the quarterfinals where the uh, head coach takes back over. They promptly lose to Burkina Faso. Immediately after that tournament, uh, Kabayer is sacked. And in comes uh, Jalal Qadri. He has been the manager since then. But this is only a few months before that final World Cup qualifier playoff against against Mali. And so in that time, he really goes about establishing a defensive foundation, and that has maintained the course for them. Um, he kept clean sheets in his first seven games, including against Japan, Chile, and then Mali twice, uh, eliminating the latter in a two-legged playoff. Without possession, we would assume this team will be pretty defensive. Uh, usually their basic shape is a 4-3-3, but uh, we're going to get the wingers uh, dropping on either side of that midfield, so you'll get a 4-5-1 that will sit pretty deep. Uh, they will try to break pretty directly, either through the middle, uh, through uh, Saifuddin Jaziri, or more likely down the channels, and that is an area that can be exploited by opposition because I think... They don't mess about. They will try to build out, but if it's not on, they will just lump that ball down the channel. So I think a little bit of pressure, uh, and they will end up giving that ball away. But I think they're okay with that because it allows them to keep that defensive shell uh, and sit a little bit deeper uh, the way that we would expect them to in this tournament, especially against somebody like France or an a opponent like Denmark, where I think they, they can 
rely on their sort of organizational structure to try to make up for that talent difference because there is a pretty sizable difference. They have good players, don't get me wrong. It's just not very, like, name players. A very interesting thing for me in doing this preview was that so often the name that everybody focused on was Wabi Khazri, who I'm not even sure will start for this team, but that's probably the most recognizable player uh, if you follow the Premier League, let's say. So I think there's a little bit of a lack of familiarity when it comes to this team, justifiably so. I would include myself in that one, despite watching some of their games, watching some of their players. I still think they're a lesser-known club, but we may get some breakthrough players in the end. Thank you very much, Taylor. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to dig into the players, the key players, the notable missions, France's injuries, probably much more than that. And also, we're going to dig into our very specific predictions for each team. Back shortly. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation, there's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly, there's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there, there's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain, there are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively, but for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. 
Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our Group D preview. Let's talk about world champions France, Joe. I want to hear a bit about their roster. We've heard a little bit about it already and some notable midfield um, injury emissions, but tell us a little more. Okay, so there are a lot of stars in this team. I'm not breaking any new ground on that one. Some key players that I wanted to go through first off, Kylian Mbappe. He is... Maybe Who? the best player. Yeah, I don't know if anybody's ever heard of him. Uh, he's he's pretty good. I think he might be the best player in the world right now whose name is not Lionel Messi, although Erling Holland might break into that. He's really good, right? Wherever you want to put him in those rankings. They have Kylian Mbappe and Karim Benzema, who are two of the best forwards the game has ever seen. They complement each other very well, I-, I think, although it can be difficult to get both of them on the field together because you need to have the right pieces behind them. But Didier Deschamps is happy to get them on the field together, as he should be, right? Because they are game changers, Kareem Benzema, his link-up play and ability to bring other players into the game is elite. Like, it is, I don't use the term world-class very often, but it is, like, top of the world's class. And Kylian Mbappe's ability to exploit space in behind is also kind of second to none, uh, maybe just second to Erling Holland. He is one of the best in the world at, at, at running in behind and causing problems against opposing back lines. He thrives in transition, and that's something that France likes to do as well. So those are two names to keep your eyes on. And then Ousmane Dembele and Christopher Nkunku are both great attackers in their prime. Dembele plays for Barcelona, where I think he's had a bit of a resurgence this year. And Christopher Nkunku has been one of the brightest players in the Bundesliga for the last year or two. So keep your eyes on them. They both won't likely start at the same time. But the fact that France can afford to bring one of those players off the bench as a sub is kind of mind-blowing. The midfield is a little weaker than normal without Pogba and Kante, as as I referenced earlier. There's still good players in there, though. Aurelien Chouameni, who plays for Real Madrid, joined them in the summer, is going to be key. Chouameni's been a regular for France recently, and they're going to need him to be on the top of his game to do a couple of different things. The first is to progress France into the final third. Chouameni takes on a lot of that burden to get the ball to the star attackers. And the second thing is he needs to cover ground, right? Because if you're, if you're trying to accommodate Mbappe, who's not really a winger, um, or, or Karim Benzema, or both of them, or maybe add in Antoine Griezmann, or add in Dembele, or Nkunku, you have to have runners in midfield, or you have to be great at controlling the ball and never losing it, and I don't think France fits into that category. So Chiuameni is going to be very important uh, for this team. Most of the losses are on the injury side in terms of omissions, but you can always quibble somewhat with Deschamps' choices because you could pick so many other players at any given time. If anything, and this is the one 
real weak point outside of midfield that I can pinpoint here, they are light on fullback depth, which if we remember was also a theme at the Euros, right? Where we had all of a sudden Rabiot playing left back in, I believe that game against Switzerland. And we all were sort of scratching our head about that. Mm -hmm. Theo Hernandez and Benjamin Pavard are the only true fullbacks in this team. In my view, Lucas Hernandez can do the job on the left. Jules Conde can do the job at, at right back, but they're not like de facto get high and wide kind of fullbacks. I, I think it's a little weird that there wasn't one more true fullback selected. There are six, sorry, five, excuse me, uh, certainly center backs, like five players that play center back every week for their clubs or or are just straight up center backs. And then there are two more in Conde and Hernandez, Lucas Hernandez, who play there regularly for their clubs at center back. So it, it feels weird to me that you would bring like kind of seven center backs and two fullbacks, but Rabiot can do that job, if not especially well. And Kingsley Coman can play wing back and has done a bit of that for France too. So they still have cover and talent at that spot. France is is real good, guys. At least the talent level says that they are. Yeah, it does seem that way, Joan. Looking at the squads and looking at their squad when they released it last night as well, it looks like the best squad at the tournament, like pound for pound. Do you, do you feel that way? Yeah, I mean, I think that the talent is up there and maybe above anybody else. The, the question marks for this team are never about their ability, right? It's never about the ceiling. It's about It's about, you know, how they're attacking methodology and how their tactical approach and off-field stuff limits this team. And those are the exact same talking points that we have coming into this tournament. But talent-wise, yeah, they can compete or, or better anybody in the world. All right. Um, and on that note, or the opposite of that note, Straya and their <laughs> roster. Uh, 17 of the 26 who have been selected are World Cup newbies in this one. Only one of their players plays in Europe's top five leagues. Uh, that's uh, Aiden Kristic, we'll get into on a second. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, arguably a weaker squad than recent squads they have had. But hey, it's very Scottish. So, you know, some correlation there, Graham. Hey, hey. Um, decent amount of their players do play in Europe, though. Um, Matt Ryan, the goalkeeper. Uh, who's pretty well known. He's at Copenhagen now, so he might have some insight on, on the Danes. They've got Fran Karacic, a defender who's at Brescia in Italy. Uh, he, Fran Karacic is very much Croatian, who played Croatian youth, but is uh, in the Australia team. Uh, as I mentioned, loads of Scottish players like Aaron Moy, who we've known from the Premier League in Brighton and uh, Celtic now. Um, Aiden Tristic, though, I think is probably their key player. He's an attacking midfielder. He's with Hellas Verona in Italy at the moment. He's he, he's like the main creative outlet, and he was certainly the star of qualifying as well. Uh, however, he did have an ankle injury that he picked up in October, so he will be a concern. They do seem quite bullish that he's going to be playing, uh, so I think he's certainly going to get the minutes there, but maybe not at 100%. Uh, there is a substitute for him, though. Little fella called Riley McGree, who was Charlotte ding, FC... Ding, 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 yeah, ding, ding. Yeah, there we go. Got the reference in. Um, he was a Charlotte FC signing who never played for Charlotte FC... Um, but he's very much part of the Australian setup. He played a lot of the um, lot of the qualifying campaign. He started them and played the full ninety in their most recent game against New Zealand. He's the one who can sub in for Fristich and uh, might get some minutes uh, by virtue of that. Um, and by the way, I. Uh, this week last year I spent the weekend with Riley McGree in Birmingham which is the club he was at the time he's at Middlesbrough now and he was very Australian we had beers after a game he played and everything so that was wonderful he's he's a good lad uh, so I hope he gets some minutes will be doing that in Qatar no he will not be doing that in Qatar no pork and no beers probably uh, Graham um, 
uh, other notable players I'll point out uh, Jackson Irvine uh, who's at St. Pauli in Germany who as I mentioned earlier I believe was a Scottish journeyman he was at Hibs he was at Celtic Ross County a few others mm-hmm. uh, defensive midfielder who can uh, who's a danger from set pieces and as I mentioned Graham Arnold does like his uh, set pieces and his set piece training uh, and Martin Boyle as well uh, right sided forward uh, who had three goals and four assists in qualifying. So those are the key players I would highlight from the Straya setup. Uh, Ryan, you didn't mention the greatest vibes player of all time who's been included in the Australian Australia squad, uh, Jason Cummings, <laughs> who has Scotland caps. That's how Scotland is Scottish he is, born in Edinburgh. But he's kind of got a reputation for himself in Scottish football for being a joker, right down to having a joker tattoo on his hand, yeah. where when he, when he scores... I'm not sure he is going to score in this World Cup because he's not, maybe not going to be a key player, a key figure. When he scores, he holds up to his mouth and he's kind of got the Joker tattoo and it's like he does a Joker face. But when I watched uh, Australia did a similar squad reveal video to the USMNT where they had Graham Arnold phone the players. And uh, when he called Jason Cummings, he, uh, he sang Grease Lightning down the phone to him. So... Uh, that kind of gives you a sense of what sort of player. Every World Cup squad needs a needs a vibes player. I saw Jimmy Conrad saying that when he went, went to World Cup, that was his role in the squad. <laughs> so maybe Jason Cummings is going to be Australia's Jimmy Conrad. Oh, that would be nice to see. Was, was Grease Lightning because he slicks his hair back, presumably? Uh, there's no explanation. There okay. never is to oh, anything that Jason Cummings does. Well, um, he, he I believe he's had only one Australian cap, uh, and that was in a recent friendly, and he scored. So he's got a one-for-one record. So uh, very good. Mm-hmm. Excited to see that as well. I don't expect that to continue. I'm not going to call him a key player, but that's a good record, I'd say, Graham. Uh, Thank you very much. Uh, Graham, why don't you tell us about Denmark's roster? So a number of these players, obviously, listeners will be familiar with, having watched them at the Euros last summer. Christian Eriksen, back in this uh, back in this national team, he'll be an important player for Denmark. He's in good form for Manchester United. And it'll be great to see him at another major tournament after what happened last year. But I actually think Hoiberg uh, is a more important player for this Denmark team. Obviously, we know that Hoiberg is an excellent passer of the ball and he keeps Denmark ticking in the middle of the pitch. But while Hoiberg is criticised for being a little bit safe for Tottenham, and that's certainly been angled at him this season, he's much more proactive for his national team. So the stats show that his uh, his progressive passes per 90 minutes is a lot higher for Denmark than it is for Spurs. He still sits at the base of that midfield unit, but Denmark really rely on him f- for starting attacks from deep. And when they get out in quick transition, they get out into the wide areas, invariably it's Hoiberg that's, that's playing those passes. Another key player who's maybe receiving those passes from Hoiberg is Joachim Myla. He was one of the breakout stars last summer at the Euros and he will be important once again at the World Cup. So he is he's very quick. His job is to get forward down the left side. He, he helps create overloads. He gives Denmark an outlet on the ball and without them, without him, sorry, they just wouldn't be as dangerous an attacking team. And it'll probably be Mikkel Damsgaard on the left side of the Danish attack at this World Cup. He likes to cut inside, and so that creates the space for Myla to, to overlap. And really, even though if he's playing in a back four as a left back, he, he's essentially an attacker, Myla. He does do a decent job of getting back. He's got that mobility, he's got that pace to recover. But his primary role in this a team is an attacking role, and the team is very much set up to get the best out of him. In defence... Denmark have got a number of, of very good players. So Andreas Christensen and, and Joachim Andersen are probably going to start together as the, as the centre-back pairing. Simon Kerr, who was obviously excellent at the Euros, he could feature as well. He's in that squad. 
but he's kind of seen more now as a bit of a depth option. So I do think it'll be Christensen and, and Anderson. Um, Kasper Schmeichel, he will definitely start. He is He's the best Danish goalkeeper since his dad. And uh, even though Schmeichel, you wouldn't say he's had a great start to life at Nice, he obviously left Leicester City at the end of last season, moved to Ligue 1. It's not really gone all that well for Nice so far this season, but he's still so important for this Danish team. I don't really need to say too much about Kasper Schmeichel because I think we've all seen what he is capable of. He's, he's one of the best shot stoppers around. And despite the fact Denmark are a high-quality team, if they're going to do well in this tournament, they're going to need Schmeichel to be in top form. In terms of injuries, I mentioned Andreas Christensen. He is actually a bit of an injury doubt for this tournament, but he's still been included in the Danish roster for this World Cup. Besides that, though, it seems like Denmark are one of the least affected countries when it comes to injuries. They have named a squad this week for the tournament. They only named 21 players, but that is not a, a Didier Deschamps flex. They're, they're going to name the final five once the final round of club fixtures are done, which just seemed like a very sensible thing to me and just very Danish. They're a very sensible country, a sensible team and sensible squad selection tactics. I like when Graham says sensible. I don't yeah. know. I like it. It sounds <laughs> nice. It was a very sensible use of sensible. Thank you. It was, much. wasn't it? Uh, last but not least, Tater, Tunisia. Tell us a little bit about their roster, or a little bit more, I should say. Uh, I will start us off by ticking this box. Uh, though they do play in a number of different countries for a number of different clubs, nobody for AFC Wimbledon. I don't believe there's ever been a Tunisian player that has played for AFC Wimbledon. So, Ryan, I apologize for disappointing you there. Okay, any Scots? Uh, probably there's a, Scot- a Scotland player in there somewhere, <laughs> but not in this one. We're uh, everywhere. <laughs> I can run it through. Tunisia, Kuwait, France, Italy, Turkey, Egypt, Netherlands, Switzerland, Qatar, England, Germany, Denmark, Hungary, and Saudi Arabia. Uh, but this team is a very well-drilled team, as I've already said. As, I, as I've already said, they're going to be most likely in a 4-3-3. And some key players that will be in there. Uh, I'm going to start at the back with Montessar Talbi, uh, a player that I was uh, not very familiar with, but he'll be, uh, I think, their... They're locked in center back for sure. He's a very good stand-up defender. Uh, he plays for, I believe, Lorient. Uh, so he's faced killing Mbappe before. And I watched some footage of that. He's pretty good at, at, at standing up, especially once that defender turns and it's sort of front to back. He'll apply that pressure. He'll make those little standing tackles and the poke tackles. Where he struggles is going to ground. Twice I saw him go in for a tackle and just get cut really easily. Uh, So you don't want him diving into challenges. You want him standing up and sort of shepherding that line. Uh, Ahead of him will be probably their two most important players in my mind. Uh, The first would be Isa Laiduni. He'll be probably on the left side of that midfield three. And I think of him more similar to like the Weston McKinney sort of position of he is central, but he can pop out. He can do this sort of destroy your job. He can roam around and make plays. And oftentimes, if the left winger, uh, who I would assume will be uh, Msakani or Msakni, excuse me, if he hasn't dropped deep, then that will be Laiduni who slides out and, and covers there. Uh, Elias Skiri is the other one that I think people should keep an eye on. Plays for Köln in the Bundesliga and has been getting rave reviews there. He is the one with the broken jaw, uh, so he's been wearing a mask lately, but he's going to sit deep. He will be the pivot if they try to build out through the goalkeeper, but he is also the one who really is the midfield organizer, uh, keeps his position really well, and I think is the key player to organizing the entire Tunisian defense. So him being able to go, being able to play every minute, I think is going to be incredibly important for them. Then further up the pitch, 
uh, a few attackers to mention. Uh, Saifedean Jaziri is the one I would I would assume will start up top. It could be Wabi Khazri. Khazri could also start out wide, but I think it will be Jaziri uh, because he has got speed. He's got a good first touch. He's a good sort of outlet uh, for for those long passes if that's what they have to do. And he combines really well with their right winger Anis Ben Slimani. Uh, they they have really good combination play. Those two and Slimani uh, very adept at sort of capitalizing on the space created by Jaziri. On the other side, Yusuf Msakni is the captain. He is very long-tenured, capable of outrageous moments of skill. Uh, He plays in the Qatari League. Watching some of his footage, he has one sequence where he makes a run, and it's sort of a through ball. He's on, like, the left side of two defenders. It's a through ball. He gets around them and then just lifts it over the goalkeeper, like, in an insulting fashion from a ridiculous angle, and it drops (laughs) into that side netting. He has good speed, tight control while moving quickly, really clever vision. So I think he is kind of the attacking creator. He's the one who's going to play those through balls, going to bend those crosses in and get some shots off himself. So those are a couple of the most important players for Tunisia. And, and I think though they don't play for the most high profile of clubs or uh, the most high profile of competitions necessarily, I do still think combined they have a very good team that knows exactly how to play and exactly what's expected of them i don't think they have ideas above their station i think that they know that if they want to get results in this one it's going to be about sitting deep grinding out those results frustrating and i think that might play really well against certain oppositions specifically france where there are some historical connections historical beefs as well so i i really could see a situation in which they if France are reliant on individual skill and, and creativity in that way, like improvised attacks, basically, I don't think that works for them. And I could see a reality in which Tunisia able to get a point against France, and I think that would be a successful World Cup for them right there. Wow, that really would be. Um, thank you very much, Taylor. Let's finish up with very specific predictions, and let's go to France. Or not, let's literally not go to France. Let's talk about France with Joe. I mean, I'll go to France. I'm fine to do that if, if you guys want to come. No, my, my very specific prediction is that France will have at least two one-twos, meaning like a quick combination, right? Mbappe to Benzema or Nkunku to whatever it is, right? Those two players quickly combining pass-pass that will lead directly to goals at the World Cup. So two of those one-two combinations that lead directly to goals at the World Cup. That is watching through the footage for this team where so many of their goals come from. It also really does fit the skill sets of so many of their attackers, right? Griezmann, Benzema, Mbappe, Nkunku. There's others in this group as well, but I, I think of those off the top of my head as players who really like to combine and then exploit space. Mbappe is often at the end of those combinations where he plays the first ball, then sprints in behind, and someone like Benzema might play the return pass. I think France are going to have at least two of those and score at least two goals off of those moments in the group stage. Or if they make a run, which I do think they will, then that extends to further in the knockout rounds as well. Nicely done. All right. My very specific prediction for Australia involves France. Um, I believe the France-Australia game will be the highest scoring game in the group stages. Uh, in that I believe that uh, Australia will get blown out by France, basically. <laughs> um, this, As I mentioned, this is a team that likes to uh, models its tactics on Liverpool. And being, being a team that models itself on Liverpool and having slightly lower quality players, they might be exposed at the back a little bit when they push forward. So I think France can uh, are pretty primed to take advantage of that. So I could see I could see them holding their own in theory against Denmark, maybe even getting a point against Denmark. I'm not sure uh, um, about Tunisia. Um, I'm not sure to get a point there, but against France, I believe they get a beatdown. That is my very specific prediction. I'm going to say a big win to nil, a four, a three or a four win, a four, three or four yeah. nil win to nil. 
what 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 constitutes like a blowout beatdown? Is it is it three 0 four 0 five 0 I think three nil or above. Is that fair? All right. What what's their? I'm trying to find them. What would be their worst ever World Cup loss? It seems like 2014 was pretty bad for them. Mm. At the last World Cup, France needed an 80th minute own goal to beat Australia. Yeah, yeah. So this is true. Uh, they've lost. Their their worst ones would be three to one to Chile, a loss three nil to Spain, another another bad one. So we're saying like four nil, uh, France over Australia. Three nil, four nil is what I would probably uh, uh, back. If there's tears, then it's a beat down. Yeah, <laughs> it's a beat down. But you're right. I remember, yeah, I, Graham. I remember that game, and I remember it. It what VAR twice I think played a role in in that France Australia game. I could see that. It's weird how it could be a blowout or it could be. A really like frustrating France performance as Australia do uh, the defensive things that we've expected from Australia in bigger games. I, I, I'm excited for that one, even if it could be a blowout, but it could also be pretty fun to watch. Yeah, I, I just think when do they play? It's the first, it's their opening game, and I think Australia mm. are probably going to try and be cavalier in this one. So I think that the France has the potential to get in behind when they try and push up and be a bit cavalier. So that was my logic behind that one. Uh, Denmark's very specific prediction, Graham. So my VSP is there will be at least one Mikkel Damsgaard banger at this tournament. Yes. That boy has a cannon of a shot <laughs> on him, uh, as we saw at the Euros. And I think there will be a goal of the tournament contender from him at some point for Den- Denmark. Also, Kasper Schmeichel will be handsome. That's my second VSP. Okay. Is that is okay? Kasper Schmeichel is your pick of the Danes. I think so. Yeah. Do you not think Casper's a handsome guy? Sure. I mean, they've got a, they they got a good record for that thing. For that. Could you not tell when I dyed my hair blonde <laughs> earlier this year that I wanted to look like Casper Schmeichel and just generally Danish, actually? Oh, I see. I thought it was that Romania team. I thought that's what you were going. Oh for. yeah, <laughs> Romania '98. Yeah. Romania. Yeah. Dan Petrescu is what you were going for, Graham. I bet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Either or. <laughs> very nice. But both handsome gentlemen. Let's call it that. Uh, finally, very specific prediction for Tunisia. All right. Well, I really like Joe's specific prediction because it helps mine, because mine is that uh, Elias Skiri, the holding midfielder I talked about previously, will commit at least three fouls against France uh, because he is a very good defensive midfielder, but he is also aggressive when he needs to be, uh, especially playing for Colm in what I watched of him. He will try to step and kind of cut out the transition passes or the cr- transition moments when the player is turning uh, and instead will be really aggressive trying to win that ball but also okay with committing that foul if it means breaking up the play. And I think that's a thing that he will have to do plenty against France. So maybe on some of those attempted one-twos, uh, he will put in a foul before that, that ball could be returned. So I think three fouls committed by Elias Skiri against France. Oh, the most specific of the very specific predictions, I like it. Thank you very much. Um, So finally, I guess we feel as a consensus it's France and Denmark going through from this group. Any any movement on that? No, that feels like the right call. But I do think Denmark will finish top. That's kind of my bold prediction with this group. But yeah, I think I think it's a pretty lopsided group. Maybe one of the most lopsided groups in terms of you have a big two and then kind of lesser two teams. Okay, yeah, that sounds about right. And that sounds like we have reached the conclusion of our Group D preview. Uh, Taylor Rockwell, thank you very much for your Tunisian flavors today. My pleasure, my friend. One of the best spice bazaars in the world. Not the best, but one of the top <laughs> uh, ten for yeah, sure. It's up there. It's up there, definitely. Uh, Joe Lowry, thank you very much. Uh, the French are not known for their food, are they? 
I, I don't think so, but a baguette to you, sir. <laughs> and to you. Et vous, et vous, merci beaucoup. A baguette, and, a baguette unto you. Oh, yes. <laughs> and Graham Rutherford, let's keep the ba- uh, the food theme going with uh, the Danes and their bacon, uh, which they won't have in Qatar. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ryan Bailey, and let's go the bacon boys. Let's go the bacon boys. And let's go the TSS boys who'll be doing a Group E preview straight after this one on the feed. We'll be there with you, listener. But for now, Bye. 